0: Welcome back to a Clubfoot Mom podcast. I am your host and fellow Clubfoot Mom Maureen Hoff. On today's episode, I have a very special guest, Dr. John Herzenberg, who is the director of the International Center for Limb Lengthening and head of pediatric orthopedics at Sinai Hospital and clinical professor at UMMS. So, If you've been a listener of the podcast, you'll know that back in December of 2021, I had the opportunity to try my own hand at casting a clubfoot model of a foot, and that was with Dr. Herzenberg. And I can't tell you enough how important Dr. Herzenberg has been to the adoption of the Ponseti method as the gold standard of clubfoot treatment. And I am so excited for you guys to hear from him directly about exactly how he was introduced to the Ponseti method, his journey from doing full clubfoot surgery for the first 10 years of his work as a surgeon um, to then moving fully to the Ponsetti method and his support of that method going globally. Um, I first Heard Dr. Herzenberg speak on a webinar that I was a presenter after him on, and he was so incredibly supportive of the work that I do as a clubfoot parent and raising the awareness of the parent's role in clubfoot treatment and how important that is to successful outcomes. So I'm just absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Herzenberg here. So let's just jump in. Welcome to the podcast, Doctor Herzenberg. I'm thrilled to have you as a guest, and thank you again for being here.
1: Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And i just in case I, you get me stumped, I got the book with all the answers right in front of me. I don't know if you know, familiar with this book? It's called <laughs> Clubfoot Chronicles: Tips for Helping Your Clubfoot Cutie During Treatment by Maureen Hoff.
0: Oh yeah, I think I've, I think I might have heard of it. Yeah, I think I I think I know that. I know I think I know That's the cover girl.
1: And this one is the
0: author. (laughs) Oh, that's a good, that was a good signature. You lucked out. Usually it's not legible. It's, (laughs) I was working on it. I was trying to make it look legible. So I'm glad that it is decent on your copy. But
1: I actually have read your book and I think it's a great book. And, you know, just talking to you and reading your book, I've learned a lot of things of From the parents' perspective, and that's important for doctors because we usually think in terms of medical perspectives. But um, thank you very much for writing that book, and many of my patients have gone out and bought it.
0: Well, thank you so much for all the support, and back at you. I've learned so much from you. From that first webinar that we that I presented on after you was it. I just learned so much from about the clubfoot. History and Dr. Ponsetti. So, I'm just happy for everybody to be able to hear you talk about it today on the podcast. So, thanks so much for being here and being so supportive of the work that I do. I do try to just shed some light on what it's like for the parents at home. Great. Yeah. So, let's just start at the beginning. Like, how and when did you start treating clubfoot?
1: Okay. We're going to get into some personal details here then. So, <laughs> um, without revealing, you know, date of birth and age,
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. I've been,
1: I've been uh, treating, I've been, you know, w- looking at and and treating and working on kids with club feet for forty years now, and I, I that goes back to 1981 when I was a resident at Duke University, and one of my professors, Leonard Goldner, was a real expert with a, a strong interest in club feet.
2: Hmm. So
1: during my entire four-year orthopedic residency at Duke. Uh, we saw tons of clubfoot, and unfortunately, you know, at the time, Dr. Goldner was a very strong proponent of uh, open surgical release, extensive surgery. Mm. In fact, he called it the four-quadrant release because he really did a circumferential um, number on these kids, and so basically for the past 40 years, I've been involved in one way or another in uh, clubfoot, and then when I when I finished my residency, I went up to Toronto in 1985 for a uh, fellowship. And my fellowship coordinator there, my director, was uh, Dr. Norris Carroll, who also had uh, a very strong interest in clubfoot and also had a named surgical procedure named after him. So there's the Goldner procedure, which was a four-quadrant release. There was the Carroll procedure, which was done through two incisions. And, you know, I, so I entered my practice in 1986 just infused and drilled into my head that, you know, clubfoot equals surgery. In fact, my mentor, Dr. Goldner, during my residency, he would tell us that if you could correct it with casts, then it wasn't a true club foot. Hmm. It was you know, like a positional foot or something else. So he thought that anything that was truly a club foot required surgery.
0: Wow. That's very different than what we currently have with the Ponsetti method. So how did you go from that to cast, the serial casting, and the Ponzetti Methods, like,
1: okay, so I, I, you know, I finished my training at, um, you know, Toronto in 1986, and then I went into practice in, uh, at first at the University of Michigan, I was on the faculty there, the full-time faculty, uh, as an academic assistant professor, and from 1991 to, um, 1986 to 1991. Uh, and then after five years there, I came to Baltimore and joined the faculty at the University of Maryland, and uh, that's been the rest of my career. Um, so I, the first 10 years in my practice, from 1986 to 1996, I, I did it just the way I was taught. I was a good student, so I did it the way Dr. Goldner and Dr. Carroll taught me how to do it. Essentially, the way doc, I like Dr. Carroll's method, and I have a theory that whoever touches you last, that's the one you, you follow. Mm. So... Dr. Carroll was my, the guy who touched me last, and I thought he was one of the best surgeons I ever saw operate. I mean, he truly was a, a wonderful surgeon, great, great uh, technician.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I, I basically, for the first 10 years of my practice, I also operated on just about every club foot I saw. And it wasn't until I'd been in practice for 10 years that I had a chance meeting with Fred Dietz.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Fred Dietz was at the University of Iowa working with Dr. Ponsetti. Um, Fred was kind of a contemporary of mine. I'm sorry to say that he's passed, unfortunately, at a relatively young age. But
2: yeah.
1: um, at the time, in 1997, uh, Fred and I were at a, a, an American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting where we were working on a committee together. And, you know, this Ponsetti method was something we had all heard about. It wasn't a secret. Ooh. I mean, Dr. Ponsetti had published this in major journals like the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. But none of us... You know, there's a thing in medicine that we often don't let the facts, you know, blind us. So, none of us really thought too much of it or gave it too much credence. People would be dismissive of it. They'd say, "Well, that's okay for farmers in Iowa because they just clump around in their fields, but for real, you know, people, you gotta operate on the feet or something." So, there was a lot of bias
2: Mm. against
1: Ponseti and against his his work. And, you know, when I talked to my mentors, like Dr. Goldner about uh, Ponsetti, he also knew about Ponsetti, but he didn't give him any credence. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: during the the time in the 80s and the 90s, when people, there were many different operations that were described for club foot and everybody was touting their special operation, trying to outshout the other guy about how Mm -hmm. his method or this method or that method. And Dr. Ponsetti was a very soft-spoken guy. And, you know, with a kind of a strange accent and mm-hmm. so he, he just didn't get much traction in the in the orthopedic world. But getting back to Fred Dietz, I asked Fred, because I really admire as an honest and, you know, an excellent guy. I, I asked him, I said, so tell me, Fred, does this Ponsetti thing really work? And he said, absolutely. We hardly ever operate on club feed here in Iowa. Mm. And I said, really? I mean, if so, if Fred said it, you know, I, I got to believe it. It's, I mean, it's funny the way medicine gets promulgated. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily by writing scientific journals, articles, and publishing books, but it's often just one-on-one,
2: mm.
1: you know, just talking to a friend. Mm. So I, I challenged Fred. I said, "Well, let me come out and you know to Iowa, and I'll 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 come out and observe, and you can teach me." And he said, "Well, at the time, it's changed now, but at the time, they didn't have that many patients because Iowa was kind of a didn't have a big population, mm-hmm. and now it's different. Now people travel from all over to get to Iowa to be treated." Yeah. But at the time, it wasn't, that, it wasn't a destination site for Clubfoot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Fred told me, listen, Dr. Ponsetti just published his book um, on the pathogenesis of Clubfoot. And so read his book, and especially Chapter 7, which tells you how to do it. And so I did that. I bought the book, I read it, and started applying it on my own uh, without you know any sort of guidance other than just to read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a seasoned surgeon, been in practice for 10 years, you know, it's not that hard to read about it, something and, and, and start to do it. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, after I had been doing it for a year, I, I immediately started seeing amazing results. I mean, this was before, I mean, we always casted Maureen. It was never that casting wasn't anything new, but it's how you cast it, you know, short leg versus long leg, where you put your fingers, what, what, what you're doing with your fingers. All that is different in the poncetti technique. So all of a sudden, when I was following the Ponsetti principles, I I was getting these amazing results. Amazing being the kids didn't need surgery. They were correcting with the casting and the tenotomy. And then I'd put them into the boots and bars. And at the time, Dr. Ponsetti was just recommending it, I think, for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's it's changed. But um, I started getting great results. So after doing it for a year, I invited Dr. Ponsetti to... Maryland. uh, It just so happened I was president of the Maryland North Peak Association that year, so I invited him to Maryland and invited him to audit my practice to come to my hospital and watch. So I called back you know the first dozen or so patients that I did and we put them in rooms and we Dr. Ponsetti and I went from room to room and you know after seeing my dozen or so patients he said um, basically he gave me his blessing that I was doing it right and of course he was very happy that I have even that I had even read his book. Mm. I mean you you probably know Maureen being an author that you know with someone to actually tells you they read your book it's you know it's like the biggest compliment you can get.
0: Yeah, you you just assume nobody reads it. That's just right. going to be the like the honest truth I assume no one reads it. So I'm sure he was like you're just well, whatever whenever it is that you find someone who has read it.
1: So I, I, he was happy about that. He was happy that I was able to reproduce his results. And then from then I actually said, okay, now I need to really delve into this deeper. So I made many trips to Iowa to visit him. I made a point of going to meetings where he was speaking and demonstrating the technique, um, different courses. And um, as, I said, as I mentioned, we invited him to speak at the Maryland North Peak Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he gave a major address before my group
2: mm-hmm. so it,
1: it there from there it began a relationship with Dr. Ponce that I truly uh, truly enjoyed I mean he was a, a real you know a wonderful man wonderful person wonderful personality an intellectual um, he was kind he was great with kids
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, he wasn't dogmatic I mean as great as he was mm-hmm. Um he was humble. Mm. And that's unusual in medicine. You know, in medicine, people, especially if they're really smart and develop wonderful things, they're mm. they're you know pounding on their chest saying how great they are and they want everyone else to tell them how great they are. Dr. Ponsetti had this humble nature about him that, you know, despite the fact he was a great man, and a lot of us thought that he should have won the Nobel Prize in medicine for right. his discovery. By the time we sort of had it organized to, you know, get him nominated, uh, he unfortunately passed, and the Nobel, you know, rules say that you have to be alive to get the Nobel Prize. So okay. unfortunately, he will never get the Nobel Prize. But I think he should have because, and there are very few surgeons who've gotten the Nobel Prize. I think it's only four altogether,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, but I think his contribution really changed uh, the lives of, you know, thousands of. Thousands of kids around the world, so yeah. unfortunate, but um you know truly a great man, and he changed my life he changed the trajectory of my career mm. um, I have to tell you a story Maureen um i when I entered practice in um in University of Michigan, my first job after my training nineteen eighty six I met with my my uh boss, Bob Hensinger. And Bob sat me down the first week I was there and said, well, John, what's your focus going to be? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm a pediatric orthopedist. So he said, no, I know, but you need to have a focus. You need to have something you're known for, something you research, something you publish on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I thought, you know, I, Clubfoot was something I had written a little bit about. I had done some work on 3D imaging with Norris Carroll. And I thought, you know, Clubfoot, that might be a good focus. But then I thought to myself, you know what, anything that could have been discovered about Clubfoot has been. Mm. and that was my mistake so instead I got into limb lengthening because that was kind of a new thing that was you know hot and sexy and no one was doing it and there was a ground floor kind of approach to it Mm -hmm. and so I I got into limb lengthening as my focus and which has remained my focus for my entire career but it's it's just sort of funny that it wasn't until 10 years later that I Mm kind of rediscovered the whole clubfoot thing and then it you know really did change my focus and I became, once I became skilled with the Ponseti method, I became very evangelistic about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I went on the, on the um, mm-hmm. circuit, and was lecturing mm-hmm. about it, and teaching about it, and writing about it, and publishing mm-hmm. research about it, and running courses about it here in Baltimore. And so it, it really became, you know, another primary focus of my, of my academic uh, and clinical career.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, it's, been a, it's been a fun ride.
0: So you see that this happens with Dr. Ponsetti, right? You meet him, you start adopting it. How do you see the actual shift? Like, when do you see that it's not just you and a few people doing the Ponsetti method, but that now everybody is kind of making the shift away from surgery?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And it's a very fascinating question because I really think it has a lot to do with uh, two things. Okay. Um, parent support groups
2: mm-hmm. and the internet. Mm. So,
1: you know, prior to the internet, doctors were the repository of all medical information. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the internet has become popular and, and widespread, and we have Wikipedia and, you know, mm-hmm. parent support groups and whatnot, um, now there's been a democratization of medical knowledge. Mm. And so now a lot of parents have and this this is not just in clubfoot this is like in cancer and heart disease and diabetes you name it i mean any disease you can think of mm-hmm. and there's parents there's uh, patient support groups for you know, like you and you name the disease i guarantee you there's a there's a patient support group for it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this has all of a sudden opened up a new world for uh, families who are seeking treatment
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know used to be you'd go to the doctor the doctor would tell you what's what and you'd follow his direction maybe you get a second opinion and that mm-hmm. was it
2: mm-hmm. now
1: you know all of a sudden you say hey i was born with a i have a child born with a club foot and you, know, you post that and like immediately you're inundated with you know a thousand replies from parents giving you advice and what mm-hmm. you should do and read this and read that and do this and go see this doctor and you know don't see that doctor and mm-hmm. so it, it's really there's been a, a sea change of how medicine is practiced and I've actually embraced that. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it. Some doctors are threatened by it.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I think, you know, if, the more knowledge a patient comes to you with,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: less I have to teach. Mm-hmm. I mean, the less I have to invest time in explaining to them everything.
2: Mm-hmm. So I have,
1: um, I divide my parents into two types. I got my internet parents mm-hmm. and I got my walk-ins.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The internet parents are the ones who found out about the club foot uh, prenatally. Mm -hmm. and they had an ultrasound and they so they have they started looking about it researching about it and you know googling it and they come all prepared and Mm -hmm. they're ready to go Mm -hmm. they're fired up ready to go as Obama said yeah the that was his big campaign thing all fired up ready to go
2: yeah
1: (laughs) and the other parents are the ones who was surprised you know they they missed it on the ultrasound they just found out you know, when the baby was born they're like deer in the headlights they don't know what to do where to go and they come to you and they have very limited knowledge and you, you have to start from the beginning and explain to them everything and this is what we're doing and this is how we do it so it's you know even more time consuming so i actually like it when parents come you know, pre-educated, and you know they've done a lot of their research. Now, some, sometimes there's bad information on the internet too. Yeah. And part of my job is just to you know help them sift through what's good and what's not so good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you know, there there early on in the clubfoot years, there were some Ponsetti support groups. The first one, the Granddaddy of them all, I don't think exists anymore. It was a uh, Yahoo support uh, Yahoo discussion page called No Surgery for You Know the Number Four Clubfoot.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and that was established by a family in Las Vegas who had a child with bilateral clubfoot
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um that that kind of started the ball rolling and as as I developed my ponsetti practice uh parents became very aware of the ponsetti method because of the internet Mm-hmm. And they would ask their local doctors, for example, I had, I had a, uh, at, early on, I had a lot of patients who were driving all the way from New York down to Baltimore to be treated because there was nobody in New York doing mm-hmm. Ponsetti method. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't take long before the New York doctors figured out, hey, um, we're getting scooped by this guy in Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they took an interest and, and they, mm-hmm. they started doing it in New York. And you know you can multiply this around the country. And eventually, it reaches what um, Malcolm Gladwell referred to as the tipping point. Mm-hmm. You know, initially it's like nobody does it, then a lot of people are doing it, then like I can't believe you're not doing it; everyone's doing it. Yeah. And so we we kind of we're at that point now where we're well beyond the tipping point. It's the, mm-hmm. now considered widely the gold standard. I, I like to think that I had at least something to do with that change. You know, by mm-hmm. the courses and publications that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, And Dr. Ponsetti, at some point, you know, credited me as having, I mean, I didn't invent anything, but I certainly promulgated his method. And so I I like to think that, that I helped in that as my small contribution to the whole clubfoot movement and the Ponsetti movement that I helped to promulgate it and make it uh, the gold standard.
0: No, I think that's absolutely the truth. I've had other surgeons on this podcast who have said the same thing that because I guess um, Dr. Frick was referring to some letter that you wrote to your mentor like how did they respond to when you were like okay this is the way you've been doing it for so long your mentor had said if it's if you can cast it then that doesn't mean it's a true clubfoot and then you come in you're like well actually I'm going to start after doing it for so long how did they respond to your change
1: well, that's that's the famous letter. that mm-hmm. got uh, Somehow, you know, things got forwarded and reforwarded, And uh, so this private exchange between myself and my mentor, Dr. Leonard Goldner, may he rest in peace. Uh, basically, I was reporting back to them after I've been doing the method for a year mm-hmm. uh, or so, and, and I was getting great results. And whereas in the first 10 years of my practice, I had to operate on 95% of the patients I saw, just like I was taught. Mm-hmm. And the second- part of my career, I was operating on less than five percent. So I I told Dr. Goldner, I said, you know, I I adopted the Ponsetti method. I was very strict in its adherence and I'm not trying to innovate or change. I'm just trying to reproduce his results. And there's been just this immediate change in 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 the rate of surgery required for my kids.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so Dr. Goldner wrote back to me and um this is a this is a great question. I'm just gonna lead into something I wanted to talk about, uh the, yeah. the feet of clay um we'll talk about that in a minute
2: okay
1: on the book of daniel feet of clay remember that one Uh, we'll get to that but
2: we'll get to (laughs) it okay
1: (laughs) so um i wrote to dr and i said you know this is great he wrote back to me and he said john very terse i wrote him a three-page letter Mm -hmm. he wrote back like a little one-liner it says john clearly as a resident you didn't get it Mm -hmm. so anytime you want to come back for a refresher course you're welcome, and I'll be happy to show you again how to treat clubfoot. So basically what he was telling me is that he didn't care what I was saying or what I was publishing or what the results were. You know, he was right, Ponsetti was wrong, mm. and that's that. And that that made me think a lot about the whole concept of mentorship mm. and of medical education and learning and being a teacher um, and I've come to realize, and actually gave a, I've developed this thought into a into a commencement address that I gave to the local, um, to the University of Maryland graduating orthopedic residents this year. I you know, put a talk together for their graduation ceremony, and the title of the talk was Feet of Clay. And mm. Feet of Clay is a biblical reference to the book of Daniel.
2: Mm-hmm. Daniel
1: was a prophet in the Old Testament, and uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, had a dream. No one could figure out what his dream was. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, try this Hebrew prophet. And um, But the trick was he, the king wouldn't tell you what the dream was. If you're a really good diviner of dreams, you could guess what the dream was. So mm-hmm. fortunately, the Lord came to Daniel, told him what, the, what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was and what the interpretation was. So the dream was uh, he had dreamt of a, a huge statue of, um, of a king, and the the head was made out of gold, and the chest was made out of silver, and the, the abdomen was made out of bronze, and the legs were made out of iron, um, and the feet were feet of clay. And hence the – so then along – part of the dream is a, a rock, which is, you know, God coming down from heaven – came and smashed the feet of clay and the whole statue topples over and gets destroyed. And there's all kinds of interpret biblical interpretations about, you know, the, the head of gold represents the Greek dynasty and then the mm-hmm. Roman dynasty and the so forth.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: the bottom line is the, in the, at least in the English language, the phrase feet of clay has come to represent the fact that some of the most exalted people in our lives, you know, politicians and leaders and great teachers, when you get down to it, they, they all have feet of clay. Mm. You know, they're just people and they they have their own foibles. They have their own biases. They have their own, mm-hmm. um, you know, their, their own idiosyncrasies. And so as much as we worship our elders and our teachers and give them great honor, mm-hmm. we have to remember that they're just people, you know, they put on their pants one leg at a time, just like all of us. Right. And, you know they've got feet of clay, so i it, it, I've come to realize that that even mentors and teachers that were at the time you know great you know mm-hmm. role models for me, it's dangerous to blindly follow them forever, because mm-hmm. everything changes. yeah, I mentioned you before, Maureen. the only thing right. constant in life has changed, yeah. medicine changes, and so mm-hmm. if you're doing it the same way now that you did it 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with you. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not keeping up with the time. So you, you can't just take for granted everything that you're taught. You, mm-hmm. you have to always be skeptical. And then if I can bring in one more biblical reference, um, you know, the, the Fifth Commandment and the Ten Commandments says honor the mother and father. And we, we use it, I'll, I'll stretch the meaning that Dr. Goldner was my orthopedic father. Mm-hmm. And so you always want to honor your parents. That's a very important biblical commandment. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But we all know as our parents age, that fulfilling that commandment gets harder and harder. Your Mm -hmm. parents become, you know, God forbid, but they become enfeebled and maybe Alzheimer's or maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of medical problems. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a real challenge to, to honor your mother and father. But you have to. So just because you don't follow them blindly mm-hmm. doesn't mean you shouldn't honor them. So I have yeah. the greatest honor and respect for my former teachers and my mentors and my role models, but I also recognize that they have feet of clay and I can do both. I can honor their memory and honor their their greatness while still not being enslaved to their teachings.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: sorry for the digression
0: (laughs) no no I I like it I think that's an interesting I mean the feet of clay just seems like a lot of there's a lot of references and metaphor within that I mean not just because it's about feet and then club feet right you're working with feet but this like clay is something that's moldable right so gold isn't silver isn't um but Clay is something that you can change over time. And like you said, change is the only constant that we have. So if it's ever changing, the clay seems to be a good representation of what life is, is that it's always going to be changeable. It's always moldable and things are always adjusting. So on that note, if it is (laughs) always changing, where is it going to, where do you see clubfoot treatment changing in the future? Um, Well,
1: you know, first let me preface that by saying that Dr. Ponsetti, even within his own lifetime, was ever changing. Right. And I like to tell my patients that when Dr. Ponsetti started, um, the the boots and bar was was a two-year thing, or maybe it was Mm -hmm. a one-year thing when he started. But then he realized there were relapses. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: one became two, and then two became three, and three became four, and then he died and you know had he not died i think it was 93 when he died but mm-hmm. when had he not died we think that four might have become five we don't know mm-hmm. so now we tell our parents that you know four is the minimum but we encourage five yeah um so he he was he, I, I we even as when i knew dr Ponsetti from 1997 onward um i saw him change like for example i remember seeing my first atypical clubfoot And Now that's like all over the internet. All the parents are tuned into atypical lateral crease and all that kind of stuff. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: at the time, Dr. Ponsetti didn't describe it. He didn't know about it. And I even sent him a picture or sent it to Fred Dietz. I I sent a picture of my first atypical and I said, what is this funny looking crease on the outside of the foot? Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: Fred wrote back to me and said, well, we don't know, but I wouldn't worry about it. Just keep going. But Dr. Ponsetti really thought about it and he ended up publishing a paper about the atypical foot, you know, well into his late eighties, he was still publishing medical works. And so he was constantly thinking and evaluating and reassessing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the lesson we have. So it's a mistake just to say, all right, when Ponsetti passed all progress stops Mm -hmm. and we just do it the way he did it. I think he would feel that we were honoring his memory if we continue to make progress and we continue to make changes. I mean, I remember, you know, t- talking to Dr. Ponsetti and I was u- using x-rays to document the improvement that I would get before and after tenotomy. Mm. I still do it. Every time I do a tenotomy, I'm, I think I'm the exception, but every time I do a tenotomy, I take a quick little x-ray of the foot and maximum dorsiflexion before. And then after I do the tenotomy and I document the, the improvement.
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: And I had some where, you know, despite the fact you did a tenotomy, you got a nice pop, you really didn't get much improvement or was still pretty down. And so I said, well, maybe those patients shouldn't just go into a cast for three weeks, which is the standard, but maybe I should bring them back in a week and do a, I call it now a bonus cast where we give them more stretch because for the same Mm -hmm. reason you can't get the forefoot corrected all in one cast, why should you get the hindfoot corrected in one cast? Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: I, I remember talking to him about that and saying, Dr. Ponsetti, this is what I've been doing. And he thought about it, and he says, "Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think you should keep mm-hmm. doing that." So he was very thoughtful. He was not uh, dogmatic mm-hmm. in a negative way. I mean, he 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 was very um, willing to entertain new ideas and new new uh, concepts. Um, some things he liked. Some things he didn't like.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: he never really warmed up to the the Dobbs bar. He felt it allowed the foot to go into plantar flexion into Aquinas. Uh, but he w- he was open to change and open to development. So your question is, what do I think is in the future?
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: one thing I would say, I think in the future, we're going to see sensors in boots, mm-hmm. um, you know, heat mm-hmm. sensors, so we can really gauge um, compliance. Mm-hmm. That's been done on a research basis, but I think, you know, from research, it's going to then eventually filter down to a day-to-day thing. These sensors are not that expensive, and so the companies that make boots and bars will probably figure out a way to embed a sensor that could then be uh, read or interrogated during the patient visits. And we can really see, you know, truly if the kids are wearing them and how many hours a day. So that's going to be helpful. Um, I think that there's been some interesting work uh, done in uh, London on muscle stimulation, uh, perineal muscle stimulation using muscle stimulators. And I think there's room for development in that area. Uh, definitely improvements in the boots and bars. I mean, we have the design that Dr. Pansky and that Mr. Mitchell came up with years ago, but there's, you know, there's definitely room for improvement there. I think the Dobbs was a, a stab at trying to make it better, and I, I think other th- changes could be made. And then the big thing I think would be if if uh, we could develop a a no-bar bar, you know, the unilateral bar, unilateral device,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's a challenge. But you know. People are talking about that kind of device too,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I, I think we'll see changes. We'll see changes in the boots. We'll change changes in the bar. We'll see changes in supplementary muscle stimulation and uh, physical therapy type things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the, the you know it's wide open, and the future looks bright because we still have challenges. We still have yeah. too many relapses, too many problems. Uh, not all club feet are the same
0: one of the things that I've learned as a parent in more of the work that I do with the clubfoot community is just, there is this kind of dogmatic I, like idea that we need to do everything a certain way and that this is the Ponsetti method and this is how it all needs to happen. And there's this idea that like, if you do all these things, right, the clubfoot is going to be cured and your child is not going to have any more issues. Right. And I think, For me, where I see it kind of moving forward is, as a parent, is helping parents understand that even though it's there is this proven method, and it's come such a long way from full-on surgery, that that doesn't mean that your child still isn't an individual person, an individual case, an individual patient, meaning that there are going to be adjustments and changes, and that you need to treat the child who's in front of you, and you need to as a parent, to address all of those things individually, instead of looking at it as kind of this generalized, I'm going to do all these things, and it's going to equal this outcome, and then I'll never have another issue again. Um, I think there's still a long way to go in that, as far as the parent perspective goes of kind of seeing that.
1: I I, I would uh, agree with you 100%, Maureen. Um, You know, once a club foot, always a club foot. I mean, it's better. It's not turned in. It's not uh, Mm -hmm. hooked. It's not, you know, it's much better after we're treating it, but it's still not a normal foot. Club feet are still smaller, stiffer, and weaker than a normal foot. Yeah. And we call it club foot, but it really should be called club leg because Mm -hmm. the condition starts at the knee down. So Mm -hmm. the calf muscle is small. All the muscles are weak. And so a smaller, stiffer, weaker foot doesn't function as well as a normal foot. Mm
2: -hmm. And as much
1: as Dr. Ponsetti would, you know, and here I have to, you know, say he would, you know, say that, you know, after treatment, the people are normal, but they're not really. I mean, even though he would, you know, when he had one famous patient that was running a marathon and that's Mm -hmm. great, Mm -hmm. you know, a slender guy running a marathon. Okay. But I have plenty of kids in my practice who, especially as they get to be teenagers, they get to be a little heavier, a little bigger, more active. They start to complain of uh, achy feet
2: mm-hmm. after
1: they've been you know up on the you know on the basketball court for an hour and a half or something like yeah. that yeah so i have um i've recognized the fact that these feet are not normal
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so when they when they complain about you know pains and aches that they're getting we talk about you know shoe modifications we talk about mm-hmm. having carpet instead of hardwood floors uh, we talk about the fact that maybe there are certain sports that are not ideal for someone with club foot and other things yeah. that are better i yeah. try to steer them towards you know things like um swimming and bicycling and weightlifting and things that are not stressful on the feet as opposed to you know long distance running track and field
2: soccer uh,
1: having said that i don't have that discussion with them until they are teenagers because
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: do think that in childhood, part of being a child is trying out new things and experimenting and seeing what you like. Yeah. But you know, I, I tell them if, you, if it hurts every time you come back from soccer practice, it's sort of, you know, maybe God telling you that you're, you're, you're stressing it mm-hmm. too much.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an important thing. I think as parents, we get, uh, I hear a lot from parents that people in the medical community, whether that is the pediatrician, anyone like that, is like, clubfoot is the best birth defect to have because we can fix it right there's something you can do to fix it so we're kind of told that and you internalize it as a parent like okay i'm going to do all these things and then it's going to be done like she's going to be fine and there seems to be some re-education that i think i've definitely gone through because i go like okay no that's not actually the case like it there are a lot of cases where it's still clubfoot. So I don't know. And it's going to be a growing, she's always going to have clubfoot and being okay with that and saying that out loud and not going like now it's going to be fixed and she's going to be fine. And knowing that no matter what happens moving forward, it's something that she's going to deal with and that's okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's maybe there's a certain disappointment that some parents may have, but uh, the way you know, I like to. Well, I have these little phrases and catchphrases that I use, and I tell them that listen, you're dealt a certain hand in life, mm-hmm. and that's the hand you have to play. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you can't pine about it or you know, worry about it. You just say, All right, I was given club feet, and so I tell them, I say, mm-hmm. If you abuse your feet, you know, if you say you insist that you want to run a marathon. Then, you know, they may not last you another 80 years, which is what they need to do or 90 years. Mm -hmm. But if you treat them right and you don't abuse them and you, you know, take care of yourself and don't let yourself get too heavy or you put too much stress on your feet, then these feet will last you a lifetime.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really, I think it's good for parents to hear is you play the hand that you're dealt and that's what, instead of wishing you had been given different cards, right? You yeah. play it to the best that you can. If you're a poker player, you know, you you play with what you got and you make the most out of it and everyone else is doing the same thing. So that's the only way you're going to win is playing the cards that you have, as opposed to wishing that you had something different. So I think that's a place that the rhetoric around Clubfoot can start to change for parents to help them better understand like this is something that isn't like fixed. You can't you don't cure clubfoot. It's something that you um correct and then we hope to maintain so that she can have the most functional happy life as, that she can and have the capability of doing anything that she wants and to a certain extent, right? that she feels comfortable with that that leads her to the most success in life, so. Yeah, so I think
1: it's a mistake if doctors give, uh, you know, a false sense of uh, expectation or security that
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: everything's going to be normal 100%, your child can do whatever they want. And believe me, mm-hmm. I've heard I've heard doctors say that, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the time, and, you know, I guess what we need is some long-term studies, some, like, bring us down to reality studies where mm-hmm. we look at clubfoot kids who are now in their 20s or 30s or 40s and See what they're doing. I mean, yeah. there were such studies done in Iowa, and comparing them to normal, you know, mm-hmm. people in the eye clinic, for example, who didn't have anything wrong with their feet, and they said they're really pretty comparable. But my observation has been that, um, you know, many times there are issues. Mm-hmm. Not all the time, but many yeah.
0: times. Yeah. Okay, so I have to ask you, why not surgery if it's the quicker fix? And it was, you know, it was the thing for so long. Why? Why why didn't we just stick with it?
1: Well, there's been enough studies now that have shown that uh, uh, feet that were treated with the standard traditional surgical approach are stiffer mm-hmm. uh, and have more pain associated with them and more higher relapse rate than the ones that were treated with Ponseti method. So that's been shown now in many studies. And so if a doctor is doing uh surgery just because it's expedient and that happens sometimes, I mean, less and less now because of the, you know, the tipping point phenomena where you know, everyone's now doing it the Ponsetti way. Although just because everyone's doing it the Ponsetti way doesn't mean they're doing it all correctly. I mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who are doing Ponsetti, mm-hmm. you know, not so great. And that's where the parents come in. I see a lot of uh, kids come to me as a second opinion where the mothers said, you know, the doctor did this, or a doctor used a short leg cast instead of a long leg, or the doctor, you know, and the, they pick up major violations in the protocol. The, the doctor said, only need to wear the braces for one year, and that's it.
2: Mm-hmm. Or two
1: years, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The doctor told me it was fine. And then they got a relapse, and so you got to start over. So, you know, it's good that the parents are are tuned to, um to, you know, what's right and what's wrong. But, you know, surgery is not – I mean, let me explain to you this way, Maureen. I grew up in the era when, uh, you know, I am guilty of having operated on like every foot that I saw, mm-hmm. virtually like ninety-five percent mm-hmm. anyway. And that was my the first ten years of my practice,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the past twenty-five years of my practice since I've been in you know full-fledged practice, not training, um, I hardly ever operate on the feet. But I do feel grateful that I know my way around the child's foot. Mm-hmm. The young docs who are coming up nowadays, the you know, who are, they didn't know anything other than the Ponseti method.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we have a ton of young doctors who trained in the past 20, 25 years, and they never saw the extensive open surgery.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: there are cases when surgery is required, when despite mm-hmm. your best efforts, you just can't get the foot corrected with casting and tenotomy and all that. And so there are, uh, you know, a small number, uh, but definite number of patients that need um, the, the more aggressive open surgical approach, either posterior release or posterior and medial. Um, but, you know, I feel grateful knowing, you know, I'm confident enough in my surgical skills that I know my way around uh, a child's foot as, you know, a little small child. And I feel very comfortable doing that surgery because I did it, you know, so often in my training and the first 10 years of my practice. The doc, the young doctors now, are a little nervous because they haven't had that exposure, and
0: mm-hmm. so that's
1: the, that's the downside to the fact that people aren't doing surgery now. Mm. Um, and then there are certain situations when you're on a, a, you know, a short-term surgical mission, you know, to Nicaragua, for example, where you're only going to be there for one week, and you either operate on it or the kid doesn't get treatment. Mm. And so there's sometimes when we end up doing surgery just because for that particular child in that particular situation, it's the most expedient thing to do. Mm
2: -hmm. Although
1: the better thing is to teach the locals how to do the Ponseti method. Um, But there's challenges. And for many years, we went to Nicaragua, I think about 10 years in a row. We were going every year and we taught as best we could. But there was real problems with the real challenges with follow up with uh, boots and bars compliance yeah and so we would often see kids come back with relapses mm-hmm. uh you know, pretty significant relapses, but they were never they were always much easier to deal with than uh someone who was relapsing after surgery because once they've had surgery, they're full of scar tissue,
0: yeah
1: to, to go back again and reoperate on them is like very hard, mm. and some of those kids who have uh, a few of them would respond to casting, but a lot of them you know, there wasn't much you could do. We had to go to much more aggressive means taking wedges of bone out or putting on external mm-hmm. fixators, things like that. But, you know, in general, I would say the less surgery, the better.
0: Mm-hmm. Coming from a surgeon. So that's something. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, all, we'll, we'll always have surgeries we can do. You know, it's not a and, you know, many of the Ponsetti patients do need surgery. You know, maybe 10 or 15% need to have an anterior tip transfer. Yeah,
0: right. right.
1: Um, And I, I think it's still, I think, yeah. You know, the the one thing that I wrestle with is how much dorsiflexion do you need? Mm-hmm. We we're talking earlier, and you told me that your little baby doll has got 20 degrees of dorsiflexion, which is, like, amazingly good. Yeah. But there's plenty of kids who have, like, you know, barely zero degrees or maybe five degrees of dorsiflexion.
2: Mm-hmm. And is
1: that good enough? Yeah. You know, should, should we be striving for better than that and how, And mm-hmm. you know, what are our, what are our strategies for that? So, you know, there's still many unanswered questions in clubfoot. You know, yeah. It's not a, it's not a done deal.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the part that comes back to the always changing, right? Like things change and there's, can always be things that can be improved within a certain method, and I think I like that about Dr. Ponsetti and all the things that I've heard about him is that he was willing to hear that and was open to it, right? Absolutely. And whereas some people aren't as open to that that idea. And I try to do that as I work moving forward too, not just getting this idea of this is exactly what I should be saying and this is how it should be done. Is this always changing what we're saying to parents and what they need to hear, so that they because there is that big component, like you're saying, the parents are this big component to clubfoot treatment to the successful outcome. And a lot of the time, I did all this work because it felt like they were an afterthought. That it was like, okay, you're doing, you're expected to do all this work at home, but um, you know, we're that's just the expectation. And there's all these variables in life that then impact your ability to really comply with what your doctor is asking you to do and so what i try to do is try to create resources and education and to empower parents to know what is expected of their role so that they can feel confident in getting to the finish line because they're such a big part of it and they have to um they have to acknowledge that to be successful i think Well, Maureen, uh,
1: if I can give you another shameless plug again, (laughs) the fact that you took the time to write this book, I'm holding up your book, and I guess your audience is not seeing us, they're just hearing us, but I'm holding up Clubfoot Chronicles, Tips for Helping Your Clubfoot Cutie During Treatment by Maureen Mm -hmm. And I got my own autographed version here. Um, I, I think the fact that you took the time and energy and effort to put pen to paper and to take it through to publication is a tremendous, um, a tremendous, uh, really monument to your, your contribution. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I like to, I not teaching my young doctors about, you know, they have a new idea for a study or a new idea for a new operation or for a new device.
2: Mm -hmm. I always
1: tell them the same thing. I say, everybody has a great idea in the shower.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. All right. So I'm sure at one point you're taking a shower and you said, I should write a book about my experience with clubfoot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people probably had that same idea when they're taking a shower, but Mm -hmm. what's really important is what happens when you get out of the shower. Mm -hmm. Do you actually sit down and bring it to light? Do you bring it to fruition? Do you do it? Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: that's where, um, you know, you deserve a huge amount of credit and, um, adulation because you, you actually, you didn't just have the idea, you, you took it forward and you did it. So congratulations on that.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. I feel like it all, the stars just aligned. It wasn't any intention behind I I didn't walk into life going, I'm going to write a book. It was just this piece where I felt just compelled to do it. It was like, this is what needs to be done. So I'm going to do it. And hopefully it'll help people. And like, like you said, Dr. Ponsetti, anytime someone says they've read the book, I'm like, okay, well, that's good. I, cause that's the weird part about doing a podcast or writing writing the book is you don't have engagement with a lot of the people that you're actually reaching. So when people say, "Oh, I've read your book," it's always it still will always come as a surprise. Like, "Oh, good! Like that's great!" And they're like, I "Feel like I know you because I listen to you on the podcast," and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you kind of do because you listen to me all the time." And I don't think about that, right? I just put I put this out into the world as a hope that it'll help people. But whether it does or not, you never really know, you know. So it's my just
1: keep, keep keep doing what you're doing, Maureen. It's you're doing great work, and mm-hmm. I, I've learned a lot from you. I um I, I'll tell your audience that um, you and I were talking, and I was kind of making fun of the fact that the uh, boots and bars manufacturer offers the boots in a dozen different colors.
2: Mm-hmm. and I said isn't mm-hmm. this
1: silly you know because you're gonna wear this boots for like you know three or four or six months or
2: uh-huh.
1: and then you got to change it. and you got to spend extra for the colors and you say oh no 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 when the kids get to be at a certain age they become invested if they can choose which color they want and you you related your experience with your daughter how you would sit down with her with a different color wheel and say all right which color would you like for your new shoes and when she chooses periwinkle or sunflower or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And then when they come, that's the color you chose. And so they're, they're much more invested into the the whole process, even as kids. So that, yeah. I mean, I've used that with a lot of my parents. And so thank you for bringing that mm-hmm. to my attention and all your other insights in your book. have been very helpful.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much. And before you go, before we end, I have to ask you the same thing. I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, which is because I'm a moment person. That's like my thing. It's like little moments that you find in life, especially when you're dealing with something that's long term and complex. So, what's a standout special moment for you? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. So, in a lot of different ways. So, do you have something that really stands out for you?
1: Yeah. So, um, for me, I mean, the the moment I'll never forget is when Dr. Ponsetti came to my clinic in 1997. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, 1998. And uh, I had lined up all the patients in rooms and we went from room to room. And, uh, you know, I showed him each patient and what the range of motion was and where they were in their treatment and the boots and bars and everything. And when he gave me his um, good housekeeping seal of approval that um, he was Satisfied that I was doing it right, because you know, Ponsetti was not an easy guy. I mean, he, mm-hmm. as nice and gentle and kind as he was, he was also, as a teacher, he was very strict and very uh, exact as mm-hmm. to what he wanted to see. And if I can end with a, a just a funny anecdote or you know, interesting anecdote about Fred Dietz. Fred was his uh, you know junior guy in in uh, Iowa for you know years and years, um, and. So as Dr. Ponsetti got older, Fred was in the clinic with him, and they would always cast together. And you know, Ponsetti would always be the guy holding the foot, and Fred would be the guy rolling the plaster and putting on the cast. And Fred used to tell me that every step of the way, Ponsetti would criticize him and say, no, don't you do too tight, too loose, We're here, more, more reps here. And he would just... <laughs> and Fred was a full professor. You know, he was. Yeah. You know, wasn't like a junior resident or something. And he was a full professor, and and had been working with Ponsetti for years. But it's like you, you know, you you could never get the cast to be good enough for Dr. Ponsetti. <laughs> he was a real perfectionist. Yeah. In fact, um, so I I think eventually when uh, when when Dr. Morquendi came over from Spain and, and started doing his residency there. Dr. Leeds thought that would be a good segue for him to back out of the Clubfoot Clinic and push more in. Mm-hmm. And so he could kind of get out from underneath Dr. Ponsetti's shadow. He got to be a little bit, you know, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: fed up with that, uh, you know, that approach. But he had the greatest respect for him. But it was hard to work for Dr. Ponsetti on a day-to-day basis because it was, you know, mm-hmm. the cast had to be just so. And it was never quite good enough. And he always had some critique Mm-hmm. Uh, what you were doing it always had something you could always do it a little bit better. And he even c- held himself to those same standards. There was one story I can tell your audience about uh, many, many years ago we were having dinner uh, in New York city with some of the New York doctors when he came to New York to do a seminar. And he turned to um, one of the elder statesmen in New York, the old a guy who had done a lot of work on clubfoot. As well, and said that uh, it was Wally Lehman. And he said, You know, Wally, I, I, and then, and, and also I got to preface this by saying that Dr. Ponsetti was about 89 years old at, at, during this dinner. Mm-hmm. He said, Wally, I finally feel like I'm putting on a good cast. Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was that critical even of himself that it wasn't until um, he was like 89 years old that he, he, he said, I finally am satisfied that my casts are good. Wow. So kind of like this, um, you know, like almost like the, um, you know, the karate kid, you know, wax on, wax off. You just spend years and years just <laughs> learning how to do the motions. And then you finally, 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 you get the, uh, you get the skill, but it's, it was amazing. So he's an amazing man. He affected my life incredibly. In he affected uh, you know, thousands of other kids and vicariously through people like myself and other people who have learned it. And so he, he, his his teachings have been projected onto literally millions of kids around the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Amazing, amazing story.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. So if someone's listening in your area and looking for clubfoot treatment, where would they be able to contact you and your team?
1: Uh, well, people can come to my website. Uh, mm-hmm. Our website is uh, limblength.org. Okay. Um, you know, limb lengthening is the other hat that I wear my other service line. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyone's welcome to contact me through email. I'm usually pretty good at answering um, you know, right away mm-hmm. and uh, happy to entertain any questions. I also have contacts around the country. So I realize that not, for a lot of people, traveling is not an option. Mm-hmm. And so if I have someone, for example, in uh, Colorado who needs a referral, I know people in Colorado and Utah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who I can refer you
0: to. Yeah, I like that. I appreciate that. And actually, that's one of the things I've heard about you from other from other parents. So your repu- your reputation precedes you as you respond to emails and you also refer to other people who are more local so that people aren't expected to travel because that is, that's one of the things that I try to be sensitive with too, is that it's not always a reality for parents to be able to travel to get treatment. And so part of that is being able to find people that are local that can do it. So right, well, definitely I mean, appreciated.
1: if we haven't created a cadre of people out there who are capable and competent, then we've failed. Because, yeah. you know, let's face it, none of us, myself included, are going to be here forever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, if we if we don't leave a legacy of um, trainees and mm-hmm. um, students that um, can competently carry on the tradition, then we failed.
0: Mm. Well, I think you guys are doing a great job so far. So let's just keep up the... So we are. Good work.
1: If, if I can make up a, a shameless plug, we, um, we've been doing Clubfoot courses in Baltimore every mm-hmm. um, couple of years, and we haven't done it for the past couple of years because of COVID. Uh, we, we went virtual with our course, our annual course we do, and we went uh, hybrid. But uh, we've decided that this coming year, 2023, in August of 2023, we're going to have an uh, in person Clubfoot uh, one day mm. course. Uh, sort of an advanced poncetti course, so I, I hope that we'll get a lot of doctors coming to that,
0: yeah, well, I mean, I do think that that's one of the things as parents that we see moving forward is like all of the original kind of call them the poncetti guard right what what happens when they retire because that's a reality. We need to make sure that that continues, and that parents um and doctors have that same training and ability to move it forward because it's definitely on the forefront of parents' minds too. It's not just the medical community, but like, okay, how are we going to make sure that the people coming up are going to be able to do the same things? So definitely appreciate I,
1: it. I, you know, here in Baltimore, I've um, taken on a junior partner, Phil McClure, and he and I do our club foot clinic together. And so, I feel confident that whenever I decide to retire, I've got a very competent and extremely talented young man who's going to carry on the tradition here.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. It was was such a fun episode and I learned so much and I think I just really appreciate you taking the time to do it and that we finally were able to make it happen. You've been so patient, so I super appreciate it. Thank you, Maureen, for inviting me. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I appreciate the invitation, a chance to speak to your audience, and um, I just want to commend the excellent work you're doing on uh, advocacy and teaching, you know, all the more power to you.
0: Keep it up. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Great. I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Herzenberg for being a guest today. It was such a privilege to talk with him and I hope that everybody listening really learned a lot from him and what his experience was adopting the Ponseti Method. It was so insightful for me to learn more about it and I'm very grateful for him taking the time to be a guest today. As always, thank you for listening and if you like this episode, Please subscribe and share with anyone you think would be interested. If you need to get in contact with me for any reason, you can do so through my website at maureenhoff.com or through my Instagram account at clubfootchroniclesmom. Until next time.